Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Today I have with me a very, very special guest. Um, we are going to basically do a co-interview here. So if you hear Mark asking me, I've kind of given away who the guest is today, but if you hear Mark asking me questions, that's why I have with me Mark LePage, small firm entrepreneur architect, writer, podcaster, educator, speaker, managing partner uh, with his wife, uh, Anne-Marie in Five Cat Studios. Uh, Five Cat Studios, for those of you that do not know about them, is an award-winning architecture firm uh, who does an amazing job creating uh, contemporary architecture just outside of the Charlotte, North Carolina market and in that market as well. Um, they have a regional reputation for doing an amazing job with their firm. But uh, in addition to that, Mark, who started Entree Architect in 2007 as a personal blog, is joining me here today. And that resource for architects globally um, has grown into a major, major resource uh, to help our architects uh, run their practices and uh, really accelerate their growth. So Mark, thank you for joining me today in this, my first co-podcast interview process. 
Yeah, thanks, Chris. This is this is going to be fun. I, I don't know what to expect either. Uh, so I, I'm I'm excited to be on your show, and I and I'm excited to share this with my audience as well. Yeah, no, this is great. Uh, first, thanks for doing this. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, really, you reached out to me and started this process. So kudos to you. Full transparency. I feel like I'm about to interview myself because you and I think very similarly. Uh, we have a lot of similar ideas and. And I guess opinions about the architecture space and business of architecture and whatnot. Um, so why don't you uh, give us your sort of origin story, your background? Um, how did you get into architecture? Why did you get into architecture? Uh, let's kick it off there. Sure, I could take up hours with that, but I'll I'll try to keep it short. I I, I decided to become an architect when I was ten, and uh, you know I I was an artist. I loved to draw. I loved to sketch. Uh, I'm a dreamer. You know, and and that came in very handy to have the skill of drawing because I could dream what my future would look like and draw it, right? And so I was into cars and boats and fancy houses and all those things that kids are involved in, and uh, and I would draw them and say, oh, I'm, you know, this week my my dream car is a Camaro. Next month was monster truck, and and I could draw <laughs> all those things. And so I, I I was drawing every day, all day, whenever I had an opportunity. I'd have a sketchbook and a pencil and I would draw. Um, and so I decided when I you know, realized that there was, you know, when people asked me what I wanted to do uh, when I grew up, I would say I want to be an artist. And uh, because that's what I was, I, I, you know, I liked to draw. And, and my mom introduced me to the idea of being an architect, that maybe you can take your skills and, and you know, go into a profession and, you know, a mom trying to guide you from starving artists to, to a professional isn't, isn't such a bad idea. Uh, and so she introduced me to architecture and, and, uh, and I thought, well, that'd be great. I'd be able to, to be an artist and I'd be able to make a lot of money because architects make a lot of money, right? Because they're just like doctors and lawyers and all the other okay. professionals that are making a lot of money. And so my whole childhood from 10 years on was, okay, I'm going to be an architect. And I literally, that was it. I locked in at 10 years old. Um, and I've told this story in the past, but, but you know, even in, in high school, when you take the evaluation test to see what, you know, your proficiency test to see what you would be good at as a profession, I rigged it to make sure it came out as architect. Um, I put the blinders on and was, I was going to be an architect no matter what. And, uh, and so in, in, uh, I went to architecture school, went to Roger Williams University in, in Rhode Island got my architecture degree, came out, knew that I wanted to start my own architecture firm uh, forever. That's what I wanted. And so uh, I came out of architecture school and I wanted to make sure that I experienced all the different types of firms. And so I came out of school in a recession, uh, got a job with Barry Postgenzer, architect and planner in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and worked for him for several years. Uh, and uh, which is a small firm, and met my wife. She she came in about a year after I was working there. My uh, my employer Barry Postcanzer takes full one hundred percent credit for my entire life because he introduced me to my wife, uh, which they didn't know. They didn't know that we were even dating at the time. Um, Anne Marie had moved on to another firm, and when I left the firm, I I not only told Barry that we were dating, but we were engaged to get married. And he had no idea <laughs> that we were even interested in one another. And so, uh, so, so that's, that's uh, where I met my wife. Then I moved on to 
a very large firm, which is uh, URS today. I think it's uh, US Corp, URS Corp, I think it's called today. Uh, it was URS Consultants at the time. It, they merged with Grenier since then and became a, one of the largest engineering slash architecture firms in the world. Um, worked there for uh, about nine months. Knew that I never wanted to work for a very large firm, but I wanted that experience. Sure. And, and then went and um, moved on to a middle-sized firm. Uh, actually, it's really a larger, small firm. Um, KGD, KG&D Architects in Mount Kisco, New York. Uh, so in, I got married and moved to Westchester County, New York. Worked with KG&D for several years. Became a project manager there and worked with one of the principals, sort of as his right-hand man. And uh, and got to do everything in that firm. Got to got to uh, learn how to run projects. I got to design. Got to do all the different things I wanted to do. Uh, but I got to the point where I had to make a decision on whether I was going to start my own firm or whether I was going to become a partner in that firm. That's the level that I was at. Should you know, I needed to understand. Uh, should I continue with this firm and become a partner, or should I go and do my own thing? And I always wanted to do my own thing, so I did that. And so Anne Marie and I became partners. She and I are the perfect architect when you mush us together. Um, she is the design side, loves to design, loves architecture, loves residential architecture specifically, and I love business. I love the game of business, and so. I took that responsibility. She took that responsibility. And um, I really focused on the business side. And I started a blog in 2006 as a marketing tool for the architecture firm uh, that was very successful. Our, you know, My residential clients felt like they knew me uh, when they read that blog. When I finally got to meet them, they're like, oh, Mark, my friend, you know, I've been reading you for years. Um, and so I realized the power of this thing, the internet, 2006. Um, 2000, 2000, um, 1999, we started the firm and I built a website in 1999, tried to convince architects that, that they needed websites. They all rejected the idea of websites in 1999. What do you need that for? You don't need the internet. That's a, it's a fad. That's not going to become it's ridiculous. <laughs> took, took years for architects in Westchester, Westchester County to catch up to me. Uh, we built that firm very quickly because of the internet, because people were using the internet. They were searching for architects in Westchester County, and I was coming up number one. Um, and so from a firm that had no work and no clients, no money, built the firm very quickly using the internet. Um, so I recognized the power of the internet very quickly, um, built that blog, recognized the power of the blog, and launched a blog for myself called Entrepreneur Architect in 2007. And um, that was really a personal blog for myself. It was just a place to sort of uh, record things that I found on the internet about business. Because I would go and I would search for business and find articles or find websites. And I would post them in the blog so I could always go back to the blog and search for them and reference them. And because in, 19, in 2007 there was nothing on the internet for architects and business, um, I very quickly found an audience for that blog, which I wasn't trying to do, um, but that other architects were looking for business information for architects and they were finding me because I was the only one there. Uh, and so in that, in the comments of that blog formed the, the, the seeds, the origin of the community that, which is today the Entree Architect community. But we would, you know, I would post something, they would comment and we would have a, a conversation in the comments way before social media even existed. And that blog continued to grow, that community continued to grow, that community 
encouraged me in all throughout the years to build it into something bigger. Uh, and in um, late 2012, I wrote a blog post, called it um, My 12-12-12 Project. It was on December 12, 2012. Uh, I promised that I was going to do something that would uh, impact me, change my life, and it would impact the world in a positive way. And I encouraged my my listeners, my not my listeners, I encouraged my readers to do the same thing, to have their own 12-12-12 project. My 12-12-12 project was entrearchitect.com. Um, launch it as a platform for small firms to learn how to build better businesses. I launched the Entre Architect podcast that same day at 12-12-2012, December 12th. Um, that's when episode zero was, was published. And that was the beginning of all of it. And uh, Entre Architect has grown from that seed to what it is today, which is tens of thousands of architects across the world. Uh, working together as a community to learn better business. Uh, there's a membership site. There's a Facebook group with 7,500 architects in it. Um, the podcast is, I just, this is episode 451. Um, and so this is, uh, this is what it's become. It's become my life. I don't practice very much anymore. We practice with very small projects now here in, in, in North Carolina. And uh, we moved here in 2019 from New York. And, uh, and then the only other thing that I would mention is that in 2020, I launched Gable Media, which is a media company. And that started because I wanted to create a second podcast. And so I asked my friend, Jeff Eccles, to host a second podcast. He's a marketing expert and I wanted to do a marketing podcast, make him the host. I invited my friend Demetrius Lynch, who is the founder of Spaces Podcast, which is a great podcast, really well done, um, and put those two guys together to create Build Your Brand Podcast. Through that process, Demetrius and I recognized that there was another big opportunity to create a media network for architects, uh, for podcasting and video channels and, and digital print. And we partnered, started a new company called Gable Media, um, and now has... 11 podcasts on it and uh two two three video channels and growing and so uh that's sort of everything in the in a nutshell a lot longer than i expected it to be but i tell <laughs> no, you that, that's it's good hours yeah th it could be we could be here two two three more hours now um and and those are great po podcasts by the way i've seen a few of those now and, and they're awesome so thank you that's yeah. great job recognizing the the need in that you know, another avenue in the architecture space. Um, you said something in the middle of your story <clears throat> about recognizing that you were good at the business side and Anne-Marie was good at just wanting to be an architect right. and being the design side. How often do you think or you see when you're talking, you talk to a ton of uh, architects in the architectural mm -hmm. community. How often do you see that and pardon the pun, that marriage of knowing who's good at business and who's good at architecture or who likes what side more. And, and how often does that happen? And how often is it more of a train wreck where it doesn't happen uh, in the architecture space? Yeah, way more often it doesn't work because architects go to architecture school to become architects. 
right? None of us go to architecture school to become business people. Just isn't part of the plan. Um, you don't recognize it because they don't even tell you that in architecture school, right? right? They don't they don't teach you business in architecture school. So you have no idea. You get blindsided by that when you decide that you want to start an architecture firm. And then you realize that you have no idea how to start an architecture firm because yeah. no one's taught us that. And so um, most firms, even if there's partners, most firms, they they do everything, right? That That the partners do business, they do you know, uh, design and a lot of them sort of run them as separate firms. Others recognize that they're, you know, that one has a strength, so they take the responsibility, though they don't want to, but they will because they know they have to. Um, but if you do look at large firms, right, large firms, KPF, HOK, SOM, there are three, num three letters for a reason. Mm -hmm. Those firms recognize that there needs to be a partner for each part of the firm. There needs to be a partner to manage the firm, there needs to be a partner to design the, the, the architecture, and there needs to be a, a, a technical partner. Um, and actually, we, uh, I partnered with a, for a podcast called Build Smart with the former CEO of HOK, Patrick McLamey, who tells that entire story of HOK from the very mm -hmm. beginning, the origins of him coming on as a draftsman and tells the entire story of HOK until he became the CEO um, and talks about how they launched HOK specifically to to have those specific roles, and that's why one of the reasons why HOK has become so successful. Um, oh, interesting. So, so it's really important to even if you are a sole practitioner, the business side is a requirement. It is mandatory, right? We if you start an architecture firm, you started a business, and so therefore we need to have somebody focused on the business. It either needs to be you or it needs to be someone else. And, uh, and so if it's someone else that needs to be a partner or, or a consultant, but it needs to be somebody. Um, and you need to understand the fundamentals of business and execute on those fundamentals of business. And if you do, there's a reward. You get to be an architect uh, because you build a really successful business and then you can be a better architect. You can go and serve your clients much better. You can serve your employees much better. You have more freedom to do the architecture that you want to do. Um, you can spend more time with your family. All of everything becomes better when you focus on the business and become more financially successful. Sure. I would, I would say I've had a similar sort of um, observation. It's either all design or all business. And there's very often not a good meshing of the two in between. What's, what's, your, what's your story, Chris? Where, where, where did you discover that? Because I don't know that answer. And I'm yeah, sure so, um, like to know that. Yeah, so uh, I have a, uh, I wasn't smart enough to rig my aptitude test. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, in high school, uh, I had one class that I liked. Um, and that was my drafting class. Uh, I was not an academic. I really didn't like school much at all. Uh, I was bored out of my mind and, but I loved, I, I had this one class, my junior and uh, senior year of high school, uh, drafting and advanced drafting. Those were the two. And that was the class I had fun in. Um, so when I started, uh, I got to the point where I had to do the aptitude test and uh, it came back that I should look at janitorial services or landscaping. And I was like, <sighs> I, 
I just don't see a future for me in janitorial services. So um, at the time, much like you, my mom was pushing me, go see this architect. Our church was being renovated at the time, uh, I think my junior year. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. And I didn't listen to a thing she said. And I have to credit my mom for this. Uh, she kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And so I finally called the guy. She, she spoke uh, to this guy named Dan Fay, who was the younger principal of a firm called TKF, Taishkent Fay, in Casanova, New York. And uh, so I, I went, I scheduled an appointment. I was still in high school. And I, he's like, well, why don't you come draft for us? And I'm like, I'm in high school. Like, I don't know anything about AutoCAD. Um, so I went there and that's how I really got started into the architecture space. And I was like, well, I like this. I was going out, I was measuring. I didn't know anything. I was, a, I was a total train wreck, right? Can you imagine a high school kid working in an architecture firm? Um, but it started to click and I started to pick up on things. And I watched and observed what the partners were doing and what the project managers were doing. And I was like, okay, I can do this. And so moving into my senior year, selected, I went to Alfred, um, got there, very technical school. Um, but I would come back and I would go vacations, summers, work there. And then I was coming back. I had some skill. I actually knew how to use AutoCAD and, and do some other things. Um, but that, that was really sort of my, my origin into architecture and where it started. But I would observe, and they were a small firm where I, where I started. And then eventually I would move on to a larger firm. I went out on my own for a while. Um, and I would start to see these sort of things where like, we were either really, really, really good at design, but nobody knew how to market. And when I say we would be the firm I was working at, or yep. in my case, when I, you know, you, you mentioned it, like you decide you're going to start a firm, you really decide you're starting a business. You just don't know it. Like you're right. almost like as an architect, you don't realize that when you go out on your own, you're starting a business. You, you think you're starting an architectural practice, you're starting a business. And while they're one in the same, they are completely different. So I had partners um, when I was out on my own, I, I had a partner and I was really good at business. I was really good at business development. I was good at going out and he was antisocial <laughs> in some regards, but he was really good at the things that I was horrible at. So I was like, oh, well, this could work. Um, you could see how some of those puzzle pieces fit together. But also I could see early on and when I was working at other firms, like we have a problem here or this is going to work out really well because we were either really good at the design side and it was word of mouth was the only way they got work, which is good when word of mouth works and the economy is great and then horrible the rest of the time. Or we had like this real uh, kind of like your experience, you, you see these bigger, larger firms, maybe almost too business heavy where there's no respect for the design side and what the architect does. So I, I had this unique situation where I could observe, all right, great on the architectural side, bad on the business side, great on the business side, couldn't, you know, architecture wasn't that important in more of a corporate setting and that imbalance that could happen. So that's why I asked you about your, you and your wife, because it's a, such a unique situation that I don't think happens 
often enough. And I think, you know, in architecture school, largely you're still on your own. Yes, there's group projects, but for the most part, and, and I think things are changing a little bit, you're kind of on your own, do your own thing. And that's not how business works. I mean, you, you mentioned it a second ago, you can't do your own thing in business and be successful or be um, at least survive uh, and have a, have a good survival rate. So uh, hopefully the, that, you know, I I think the conversation conversation is changing a little bit. I actually interviewed on this podcast, on my podcast, uh, my, one of my college professors. And one of the questions I asked him is, is it your job to educate your students to be good at business? And he's like, Chris, I can't even educate them on the the technical and the design. I don't have enough time to do that part, let alone teach them how to run a business. So, and that's pretty universal for educators. You know, the architectural schools don't feel it's their responsibility to teach architects business. And, and they, and that's the answer is that they don't have time to do that. They're teaching us to be architects, but there is a missing link of, of between architecture school and practice. It's supposed to be NCARB and the AXP, but it's not happening there either. And so, no. so there needs to be a, a you know a, another step where architects learn to run businesses. And whether you're starting your arch- your own architecture firm or not, knowing the fundamentals of business will make you a better architect, even if you're working for someone else. Absolutely, yeah, I, I see that a lot too. There's a disconnect between management and you know the, right. the doers, right? And well why can't I get a $40 an hour raise? You know, you're charging the client $150 an hour for my time. And there's a, there's a huge disconnect between, you know, liability insurance and, you know, a multiplier and all those things that go into running a practice. Um, so I would agree uh, having an understanding as an employee of how a practice is run uh, would make you a better employee and probably give you more opportunity as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd make more money. Totally. Yeah. Cause you become more valuable. Right. Right. Um, so, um, when you started entree architect, I know you gave us sort of the origin story. Yeah. What is, what is the mission? I mean, if you have like one battle cry right now with, with entree architect, cause I'm, I'm sure it's probably changed over the years and as the industry's changed and different, uh, barriers pop up for architects, you're probably navigating those real time. Um, but what would you say is, you know, if you're, you're, what's your battle cry right now? Yeah. Well, the battle cry is profit than art, right? And that's self-explanatory <laughs> based on what we've been talking about. Build the business first, and then you could be a great architect, right? And, and so, so I've been saying that for years. And, and when I first started saying that, architects you know, the, and it still happens that, you know, they, they would physically reject it, right? They would, the, the hair on the back of their necks would stand up because the word profit <laughs> comes before art. But if you build a successful business, then you can be a better architect. Um, and so that's, that's the, the battle cry. But really the mission is to make individual architects more successful, right? And it's the same as you, uh, Chris. It's, 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 if we can help architects individually build stronger businesses, then the profession thrives, right? This, the profession becomes a stronger profession that can evolve with the technology and evolve with the industry and evolve with the world that's developing around us, which benefits the world, right? When architects are successful, when you have a strong 
thriving architecture profession, the world literally benefits from that, right? So if, if I can help individual architects be more successful, the profession thrives and the world becomes a better place. And so that's my mission, right? Is, is to make the world a better place. Everybody wants to leave the world better than you found it. And that's the way I'm going to do it. Yeah. Oh my God. I, like I said, in the beginning of this, I feel like yeah. I'm talking to myself because I, I have a very similar um, sort of philosophy about this and it gets a little bit cornier because I believe that when you, when you design, when you, when you're in the flow as an architect, you have this frequency that you put out. Everything has a frequency. Think about anger. You know, you're walking around angry. You're going to attract anger towards you, angry people, and everything's going to be anger. But if you look at uh, design and when you're designing, it's creation. You're in the creative mode. It's like God to some extent. Maybe that's why a lot of architects have the God complex, but Um, that frequency when you're putting that out is what goes into your work. And to your point, your work is what's shaping the built environment. Your work is what's going to benefit society and any society that's prosperous or healthy or productive celebrates art and architecture. And if you go back through history and you see any society, I mean, we could sit here and name them all, but any society that was uh, at, at their height and was prosperous, an architect was a large part of that society. And an architect was also highly respected in that society. But that's because the, sci- the society was benefiting from the work that the architects did. And so I, I get a little more corny with it, but it's very same yeah, thing. I don't saying. think that's corny at all. I love that. I I think that it that it is that it is what it is, right? I mean, that is what it is. It's history, yeah. um, and and that's very much the reality of today. But if you look at the future, do do architects have a position in in the future? Do they have a role in the future? Right when when technology starts to do some of the work that we do, how do we continue to have that respect? from our society, right? How do we continue to have that role in, and for, first of all, re, re, recover that role, right? Because it's part of our problem, right? Is that, we, mm. that we've let that, that go. Um, so how do we recover it? And then in the future, when there are other industries and other technologies doing a lot of the work that we do, how do we can continuously stay uh, relevant to, to our societies? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's probably why you and I and others do what we do for the profession. Um, I, I think in one regard, we have to rehabilitate our self-respect. Uh, we've done a, a, a horrible job at um, really undercutting each other. And kind of what I was talking about a second ago, in college, you're on your own mm-hmm. for five years, Right. Go and do your own project. Don't talk to anybody. Don't collaborate. Don't cheat. And then you're put out into the real world. And the way you are successful is you collaborate. Um, You work with other people and you play off each other's strengths. And I, you know, it's a, it's a weird profession where we're all highly, um, we're, we're, we're all highly like driven when it comes to our own creativity, but yet we, we are not really good at sharing with each other. And um, I think that 
leads to some of the situations where you see we undercut each other to get a project, right? I'm going to take a loss to win this project so you don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. And and we're one of the, I think, few professions that do that. I, you know, maybe there's an, an attorney that does it, doctors. I don't, I mean, when was the last time anybody asked the doctor how much it's going to cost? You just go in and you pay for it. Um, so I think we have to get past, and, and this is a long answer to what your question is, but you even mentioned a second ago, you know, profit first. And most architects freak out when they hear that because they're so worried about, I need to get the project. I need to express myself. I need to be creative at any cost, including losing money and, and screwing the, the guy or girl in the firm across the street. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very holistic problem, I think, that's um, somehow become inbred in our profession. Yeah. And, and it's going to change a major, it's going to take a major perspective change in order to shift uh, how we think about each other and how we think about our profession. I, I think a lot of it has to do with self-respect, which is yeah. a bizarre thing to say about highly creative, highly educated profession. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I think that much of that was, um, is generational. I think that the generations before me we're taught that, right? That that business was bad, right? That we weren't allowed. I mean, we were literally not allowed to market ourselves. Yeah. Right? We were literally not allowed to talk about fees and money. We're still not allowed in in the AIA. Correct. Still rules yeah. that you're not allowed to talk about fees when you're within a the the the, the purview of an AIA event, which is ridiculous and crazy. I understand why they do it because of the antitrust law, um, and they're protecting themselves as an organization, but. But that's terrible, right? That is that is that is damaged generations of architects to not be able to talk about business. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by BQE, the makers of BQE Core, systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30 plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Tiger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, 
the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com masterclass. That's bqe.com masterclass. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices to managing online payments to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the new digital bills and receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours per week in the process, 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. It's almost tax time. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys over to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. Try FreshBooks. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. It's free. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect. Freshbooks.com slash architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with your 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered, and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, aka CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by Artcat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's artcat.com slash podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed, every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you the Entree Architect community. I see a shift. I feel the momentum shifting because of people like you, Chris, and, and things that, that I'm doing at Entree Architect and Enoch Sears doing what he's doing and yeah. Evelyn Lee doing what she's doing at Practice of Architecture. There's a generation of us that recognize this, right? And we are out there trying to be leaders, trying to inspire and motivate a generation of architects the prior generation to us to recognize that they need to recognize that they need to change, but also to inspire the next generation. And so that, 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 um, that, that, um, culture of sharing is something that I've 
been very focused on at Entree Architect and specifically at the Entree Architect Facebook group, it is built with a culture of sharing. Openness, transparent, sharing. Be in there, be positive, be kind with one another, share with one another, love one another, you know, care for one another, right? Sure. And, and so there's a culture in there that's very positive and, and encouraging. It's hard to manage that sometimes. Now we have 7,500 people. Um, there's always somebody in there liking to poke, but that's the culture that's in there, right? The culture self-polices themselves, which is redundant, but, but you know, they're, they're in there protecting the culture because they recognize that there's a value there. I also feel that the next generation is coming to this profession expecting that. They're expecting to be entrepreneurial. They're expecting to be sharing because they've been doing that since they've been born, right? They've been on the internet literally with an iPhone in their hands since they were born. For and sure. been, and as, as kids and teenagers and young adults, their existence on that device has been sharing their life, sharing everything. Right, they share where they are, where they're going, how they're going, what they look like, what they're wearing. They're sharing everything, and so as they enter the profession, they will expect to continue to share, and they will expect. And they're very entrepreneurial because of the internet. They see sure. businesses can be built. Um, many of them recognize that they can build businesses, very successful businesses, without universities. And so there's that shift that's happening. And so I see that there is a momentum that is moving in the right direction that architects are sharing more and, and those shifts are happening uh, because of the work that you and I are doing. I, I would agree. I would agree. I think, I mean, with, with any problem, the first step is acknowledging it and right. having a conversation around it. And I think largely from the work you've done and others that have come before me and, and my generation is um, you started the conversation, right? Um, you know, it used to be, don't ask, right? Sit down, go back to work, shut right. up. <laughs> you have a job. Um, and now you can at least have the conversation around it. It's, it's taken a long time. You know, you've, you've been doing this since 2007, right? So yeah. I'm sure you've probably seen the shift um, to be more positive conversation. I think the generations, younger generations are part of that though, right? Yeah. To help that conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, uh, it was they had Go ahead. I was just going to say it was very interesting, the evolution of Entree Architect, because when I first started that blog, I would write openly about how much I was charging and encouraging others to talk about that. And every time I did that, I'd get some old timer emailing me separately saying, hey, you know, Mark, I want to protect you. I don't know if you know, but you shouldn't be doing that. That's against the law. Right. And so there's an entire generation that thinks that talking about money as an architect is is illegal. Right. Yeah. And so, and so I had to, for years, had to respond to that and share information about why it's not illegal, why it's important to do that. Um, and so even, even ge that generation now is coming around and recognizing, uh, that, that it, it is important to talk about business and talking about money. Um, oh, yeah. but there has been this evolution in our profession uh, that that has been has shifted from very secretive, very hoarding of information to becoming more open and honest and sharing with one another. I, I had a very similar, um, you know, you talk about the fee conversation, and, and you mentioned that before, right? People push back on you. 
And marketing is the same way. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, early 1900s, the AIA frowned upon marketing. And right. in years, years ago, I started a, a marketing because I love marketing. It's just like, you know, I love the business side of, yeah. of what architects can do. And uh, one of the biggest rejections I got from a lot of architects, especially older ones, is it's, it's not you shouldn't art, you should not market as an architect. It is right. not something we do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, it's so bizarre. And there's a lot of that that still goes on yeah, yeah. today. It's cultural, right? Because that's the way they were taught. It's not because that's the way they feel, right? It's, it's the way that they were taught. They, yeah. were, they were taught that that's the way it worked. Um, and there was a generation that, that that's the way it did work. That is how it worked. But mm. it certainly doesn't work that way anymore. No. Right? We no. absolutely all have to be marketers. We all have to be media companies, right? We all have to tell our stories. That's how the profession shifts from the minds from the mind of the of our clients. Right. When we hear architects say that we're not valued anymore, we're not respected as architects, that's because we're not telling our story. Someone yeah. else is telling our story. HGTV yeah. is telling our story. You know, <laughs> other industries are telling our story and it's not accurate. And so it's our responsibility. Again, it's our individual architects, our responsibility to tell our individual story, right? Through social media, through writing books, through podcasts, tell that industry or tell that audience, tell the consumers what we do do. And by doing that, that's how that, that respect and that value will happen, which is the origin of, of Gable Media. That's why we built Gable Media, so we can help architects tell those stories. Yeah, and you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I kind of said it better myself, so. Um, so we've talked about a lot of uh, topics here that I think are probably some of the bigger uh, maybe challenges in the in the profession. Are these the only challenges you see? I mean, if you had to pin down one major or a few major problems in the industry, did we just hit? Did we hit them all? Are there a few others that you see no. out there that you're like, this is worse? <laughs> yeah, I think there is something way worse. I think that that architects um, are rejecting the technology that's coming to us, okay. um, that, that artificial intelligence and the metaverse and NFTs and um, VR and all of this technology that's out there that's being developed uh, much of it being developed without us, right? There are industries yeah. that are coming with into our profession and replacing us with technology, um, and and so that's a that's a problem, right? That if we don't recognize that that that's happening, right? That we see it that it's happening, and embrace that technology because you can't reject it. It has momentum. It is coming. Yeah. It is it is inevitable. It's going to come. Our uh, existence is based on whether we accept that technology, embrace that technology, control that technology, and develop that technology ourselves from within the profession. And then we will be able to continue to thrive and regain that value and that position, that coveted position of, of, of leader as a profession. If we don't, we go away. We become mm. obsolete. We get replaced by technology and other industries. Without a doubt, that will happen if we don't embrace that technology. Way worse than anything we've seen in the past in the profession because we literally can become obsolete. 
Sure. Uh, do, you, do you think we're going to see, and I, I, I think I already know your answer based on what you just said, but do you think we're uh, heading towards a space where AI takes over and just designs buildings? I just literally, just before this conversation with you, I got off another conversation, which is most likely the episode before this one, mm-hmm. um, with, with um, Eitan uh, Safarti, I think his name was, uh, with um, Swap.net is the name of the company. It is an architecture construction AI company. He is developing software to design buildings, to, mm-hmm. to design the entire thing. <laughs> That's what he said he's doing, and it's wow. doing it now. Um, and so I asked him the question about what about the, the future of architects, and he said there's definitely a role for architects in the future. It is about problem solving and creativity. Um, and so, yes, let the architect, let the technology, let the AI create the redundant stuff, the, the, the stuff that, that we spend hours and maybe weeks on developing models of that building that, you know, could be done by a computer very easily. Sure. Right? Plug in the parameters of what you need the building. AI takes over, pops out within seconds, a building. Um, it is our job as architects to create, a, take that building and and personalize it to the client, personalize it to the context, um, put a creative, uh, a, a unique uh, way of, of presenting it, um, and solve the problems, right? Make the connections between the, the people, right? We, be, we become very much uh, a, a relationship-based uh, profession in the future uh, because the technology is going to be doing a lot of the things that, you know, uh, that, uh, that, that we've been doing. It almost sounds like, though, in in a perfect scenario, ideal for architects, right? I don't have to do any of the, yes. the boring, redundant that's what, stuff. That's what Eitan was saying, is that, yeah. is that it takes care of all the stuff that we don't want to do, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it presents us something that we can go and do the things that we love to do. We love to be creative. We love to come up sure. with, with new solutions that haven't been created before. And so let the computer do all of that, which it will, whether we want it to or not, it's going to, that's going to happen. Um, and so that's why I say embrace it. Where are those tools? Take those tools, get them into your firms, use them, figure out how to, how to profit from them, how to make you more profitable by being more efficient. Um, and, and control them, right? Have you, you tell that story of what our future is, because if Mm. we don't, yeah, we're gone. Yeah. But to your point, it's something we have to get ahead of, take responsibility for, be in charge of market, promote, yeah. and be trained on, on how to actually sell the value of right. the creative side, which is is what most architects struggle with now, right? Yeah. It's hard to prove their value for something that's largely been uh, commoditized because we have not taken responsibility for it. Yeah, we should also we should also not be afraid to step out of our traditional role as architects, right? If you have an mm-hmm. idea for technology, go develop that technology. Don't be afraid that maybe you're not going to practice architecture anymore. Solve the problem, right? No. Architects don't have to be building designers, right? Architects are problem solvers, and if we evolve, maybe we become something more than than building designers, right? Maybe we're we go into into buildings. Maybe we go into homes or or uh, office buildings or industrial buildings, and we 
solve problems. Sometimes that problem solution is a building. Sometimes it's not, right? And if our role is problem solving rather than building designing, um, we will become much more relevant. Mm, yeah. I, I think there's there's something key there that uh, probably gets glossed over in our profession is we're problem solvers, right? It's always looked at as, oh, it's a building or it's a design, but it's, it's a solution to a problem. And if you look at most buildings, especially uh, buildings in the public space, for, for whatever reason, uh, last night I was looking at airports. And like some, I, I've had to travel a lot lately. So I'm like, some airports are horrible. They don't, yeah. it's just atrocious, right? Now LaGuardia, Cooper, we're looking <laughs> at you. <laughs> but then, I, now I haven't been to Atlanta, but everybody tells me Atlanta is one of the most efficient airports on the planet. So I looked it up because I'm curious. And I'm looking at the plan of Atlanta and this underground uh you know, tunnel system with a, a tram and railroad. And I'm like, okay, it makes a lot of sense. Now I'm almost stupid enough to be like, I want to go fly out of there just to be like, is it really efficient or not? <laughs> but it's a solution to a problem. And some solutions are better than others. And to your point, I mean, why couldn't an architect design, even if it was a warehouse for Amazon and Amazon has a logistics problem? you're responsible as the architect for not just the, the roof and the walls, but the solution to the problem inside of it. And I think we used to be that. If you look at architects throughout history, we used to be the designer and the builder. And we were involved from everything from tail to nose in a, in a building. Yeah. And not so much anymore. We've, we've largely given up a lot of um, our responsibility in our profession say, hey, we just do these, we only do this 10% now. And it's hard to uh, maintain control of a profession when you've given away a lot of it um, from construction management to, uh, you know, building automation. A, a lot of it has just gone away. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to hear um, stories about the future of architecture, listen to Evan Troxel's podcast, Troxel, T-R-X-L is the, is the podcast. It's a Gable Media podcast. And he is, he is talking to the, the architects and tech entrepreneurs who are at the cutting edge of architecture and construction technology. Um, and those conversations are fascinating because they're doing it right now. All of the technology that you think is in the future is, is here. Sure. It's already here. Right. And, 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 um, you can see where the profession is going with every episode because you can really, and, and they're just having conversations, right. About what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, it's fascinating. Every week is a different take on how the profession is being overturned, uh, in, in a good way. And sometimes in a bad way, uh, by technology. That's good to know. So that you already kind of got my next question. So, <laughs> um, Tell me a little bit more about Entree Architect. You have an annual meeting coming up later this year. Yeah. Um, what's that going to look like? Who should go? Um, what are all the details? Yeah. The annual meeting is for our community. And our community, when I say that, is small firm architects around the entire world. That's the Entree Architect community, small firms. Um, and small firms are, you know, any, anybody who's a sole practitioner up to maybe 15, 20 people. Those are small firms in our, in our de definition. And yes, 
bigger than that, you're you're welcome to. But our our that's what that annual meeting. It is our first conference. It is the first ever conference for small firm architects that are specifically for small firm architects, and it is going to be business focused. It is a, it is intended and scheduled to be at the end of the year. It's uh, November second and third. Um, with a reception on the first. So Tuesday, you show up Tuesday night, we'll have a big party, have fun. You know, this community that we are all hanging out with and talking with one another over the internet for the last two years, three years, or or 10 years, we get to hang out with one another face to face at a reception. And then for two days, we're going to have um, sessions about business and success and mental health and all the things that that come along with being a small firm architect. And so the idea is that it becomes sort of the the off-site retreat for architects, small firm architects. Big firms have these off-site retreats. They get the the people who are making the decisions in their firm, and they go off and they have vacation, and they have some some meetings, and they talk about what they're going to do, what they did this past year, and what was successful, wasn't so successful, and what are they planning for the next year. That's how this is being planned. It's being planned so it becomes the off-site retreat for our community. And it's called the annual meeting because we're going to do, to do it every year. It's in Austin. And so if you wanted to go check it out, it's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting. And you can grab a ticket. It's going to be small. So if you want to go, you got to grab a ticket. Uh, in uh, March 1st, the tickets open to non-members, non-members or current members of Entre Architect Academy and Entre Architect Mastermind Groups can purchase tickets now before March 1st. Um, and then they open up on March 1st to the general public um, for open, you know, for open, uh, it's an early bird. So it's a reduced cost and then some down, I don't know what the actual date is, but eventually it'll go full cost. Uh, but it's going to be about 150 people. And so it's going to be a pretty small, intimate, which is intended to be, uh, you know, very focused, right? And so it's <clears throat> not one track, everybody's in the same room, learning the same stuff, talking to the same people. And then lots and lots of socializing, lots of in-between sessions, being able to hang out uh, and just be with one another, learn from one another, which is what I love to do at conferences. Yeah, no, no, that's great. I, you know, I, some of the best takeaways and realizations I have are when I go to conferences. Yeah. You're out of the office. It's a different mindset. You get to meet people. They have a different perspective. Um, you have people up on stage that are telling you things that you haven't even thought of before and right. you come back refreshed and you're like, I've been doing this wrong for seven years or 10 years or seven months. Right. And you can then say, all right, I need to, I need to adjust course. So that's awesome. Yeah. And we positioned it in that first week of November because th after Thanksgiving, basically everybody starts to think about the next year, right? Hmm. So the end of the year happens just before Thanksgiving, right around Halloween. And so we positioned this event to be the end of your year. So you, you practice your architecture, you run your business, end of the year, come to the annual meeting, look at what you did well last year, plan for what you're going to do next year, then go home, gives you a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving to sort of execute on some of that stuff, get those plans in order, then go have a great Thanksgiving dinner, go have a holiday, and then January 1st, take what you learned from the annual meeting and start being successful. And then next year, next November, you plan on doing it again and we get more and more successful every year. That's great. That's great. Um, so I'm going to, I got one more question for you. All right. Um, and then if you have anything for me, you can hit me up. But uh, what, what is the, you know, what is the potential for you 
personally and Entree Architect. Where do you see this going? What, you know, if you could project yourself 10 years into the future, yep. um, where are you going to be and what will he, have you accomplished for our community? Yeah, I, I want to live, I want to leave this world better than I found it. Um, and I don't want it to end when I go, right? I, I'm building this for the profession, right? And so what I've recently done is I've recently announced a Gable Tech Network for Architects. And what the Gable Tech Network for Architects is, it's, it's the seed of something in the future. Right now, it's a network, right? It's, a, it's a taking the community of architects, right? We have tens of thousands of architects in our community, but I have no idea who most of them are, right? I have mm -hmm. no idea where they're based or what they do is, as architects. Um, you know, I don't know their specialties. And so they, there's, we can't leverage that, right? We can't, we can't uh, use our relationships to become more successful. Yes, we can, you know, take courses, we can, you know, do webinars, we can do all of that, we can hang out in, in the Facebook group and, and learn from one another. But the idea of Gable Tech Network is to take that community and bring it into a network. So we know who you are, where you're based, what you do, how you do it, uh, and what you want to do. Right, and now we can take that that network, and we can match up this architect with this architect, and together they become even more powerful. Maybe we go after bigger projects. Maybe we we um, you know can bring in software and be able to provide software at a lower cost. We can provide services at a lower cost. Maybe we can get insurance and health health insurance and liability insurance at a lower cost, just by bringing all these architects together and knowing who they are. Um, and be able to maybe reach out to some of that technology that we were talking about earlier uh, and make that technology better, right? That the network can become a way for us to engage with that technology. And so maybe let's say the, uh, the real estate industry has a software that's really powerful, right? But it becomes even more powerful when we plug in a network of architects to it, right? Mm -hmm. Because those are the kind of opportunities that we can have. We can collaborate with that technology to make that technology even better, right? So we can gain that technology, but we can also prov uh, provide and contribute to that technology. And then in the really far future, the 10 years that you're talking about, imagine when we have thousands of architects that are all linked up in a network. And go back to that problem solving conversation we were having before. Imagine the problems that we could solve by having thousands of architects who are problem solvers linked up through a network through a platform that's intended to problem solve. And now we can go after big global problems, big industrial problems, and, and benefit from that, right? Make the world better from solving those problems, but also have those corporations pay our network to solve those problems and then mm -hmm. distribute that to the architects who helped solve that problem. That's the kind of stuff that I'm really excited about by being able to take this community that we built over the last 10 years and, and, and then leverage it to become something that's even more powerful. Yeah, that that's amazing. I mean, I, I think the networking, the collaboration uh, to solve a problem, especially on large scale, it it, it definitely gets the attention of society, right? Yeah. Of the world, and that's what we need in a positive light. Instead of uh, it's just another architect trying to get their ten percent or six percent or. Unfortunately, in some cases, 4%. So, um, <laughs> stop, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so raise your fees. That's, that's what you need to do after this call. Raise your fees, double them. 
See what happens. Yeah. Double, double yeah. your fees on the next project and see what happens. Maybe you'll get it. And then you, that's your new fee. And yeah. if you don't, then you bring your fee down a little bit, raise yeah. your fees. Well, don't, don't think about architecture and clients and projects as a scarcity. There is an abundance. There's much more out there than you think, especially if you market and promote yourself properly. Uh, you should never be in the position where you have to lower your fees. And if you are, it's an indicator that you're not pushing into the marketplace hard enough. Um, and frankly, if you have to go that low on your fee, you don't want the client anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. So. Sometimes you make more money on the projects you don't take. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, I, I do this thing called the dwindling spiral. And I, I think in some marketplaces, some either geographically or depending on the vertical you're in public, residential, whatever the case may be, there's these pockets of this, I'm going to go lower than the next guy or the next firm or the next girl because I'm going to win. And right, right. When, you, when you win, you've really lost because yeah. you cannot survive. That's, that's not a good way to run a business. And, but it creates a commodity right. out of what we do. And that's why we've ended up in this position as a profession uh, because we get shopped. I'm going to go to this firm and that firm and this firm, and I'm going to shop around till I get the lowest fee. Yeah. And we've done that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I, I had a uh, competitor of mine uh, mid middle of COVID call me up and tell me I'm going to go in at 4%. <laughs> I'm like, Good okay. Luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. And in his philosophy was, we're desperate for work right now. And we, I wasn't, we didn't need the work. And I was like, good luck. I mean, if you get it at 4%, you know, you're going to lose money. And he's like, I have to do something to keep the lights on. So and I was build, like, a, build a better business. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, as you know, you know, it's interesting. We have to compete with each other, but at the same time, our, our competition shouldn't be on that fee for a project. We should be competing to make each other better so right. that when I don't get a project and you do, you're getting it at a healthy rate and I get the next one and maybe you don't. There's an abundance of work out there to my point earlier, but we should be helping each other and educating each other to the point where we don't even have these conversations about how low can you go on your fee? It's, it's just ridiculous. Right. Right. Which is why it's so important to build a brand and differentiate yourself from, from your competition. So, yeah. so you can demand higher fees that if you want to work with us, this is what it costs. And if, yeah. you, and if you don't, then good luck. Yeah. Well, in some ways too, it's, it's selfish to lower your fee. Because when you lower your fee, you can't market, you can't pay your employees, uh, you, you got brand issues, uh, you're probably struggling to pay your liability insurance at that point. Yep. Uh, you're trying to cut corners to get the project done. And there's nothing to give back at the end. There's no way to go back to your community, your charities that you want to support, uh, your staff. So, you know, in some ways you think you're doing the right thing by cutting your fee. You're not. You're, it's actually very selfish. And you're building your brand with every decision you make. So sure. if you're making the decision to raise your fees, you're building a brand that you are worth what you're charging. And if you're yeah. building a brand that's based on lowering your fees, 
That's your brand. You're a cheap architect. Yeah. You'll work for 4% because yeah. that, that client's going to tell his buddy that, look, this architect worked for 4%. Go to him. He's cheap. Yeah. And that's your yeah. brand. Now that's who you are. You become known as the Kmart architect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's your reputation. And it's a bad reputation to get. It's hard to get out of that yeah. space once you get in there. Yeah. Um, so. So I have a question for you. This is a question that I usually wrap up my podcasts with. And okay. it's a big, wide open, open-ended question that I ask every architect. I've had, you know, like I said, this is 451. I definitely asked this more than 300 times. What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? What can they do right now that'll, that'll impact their business for tomorrow? I, I think I, I'm a big believer in really two things. Uh, one, I think if anything you can do is, this goes back to the self-respect and dignity, market yourself, promote. Uh, we, we do not do as a profession, we do not do enough of that for ourselves. Um, I don't know if it's because we're shy, we're worried about the money, we're taught that it's uh, not a dignified thing to do going back to, I think, I think the, the meeting I read it was a, the meeting minutes from an AIA meeting in early 1900s. <laughs> that was one of the things in there it said, uh, it is undignified to market yourself. Right. So um, if there's anything you could do is monitor and track how much outflow you put into the marketplace, it will come back to you. But architects have an abundance of content. Every sketch you do, every project meeting, drawing, there, there's no limitation on content. So I, cause I've heard that a lot. I don't, I don't know what to put out there. Yeah. Just put out what you're doing every day. Um, so I think on one hand, it's that you have to get over this idea of being afraid to market and promote yourself. Um, the more you do that, the more attention you get, the more attention you get, the more clients you're going to get. I think that's something you have to do every day. And then the other part would be, and this is a selfish answer because it's what I do, but it's it's uh, training, whether that's figuring out how to market, figuring out how to uh, negotiate on a fee, um, how to train your staff um, on, you know, just follow up or how to show up to work or a multitude of things. But um, it goes back to what we were talking about before uh, you leave college or staff leaves college and they have a five-year experience in technical and design right but they don't know how to call a client they don't know how to deal with communication issues in the office they don't know how to deal with follow-up issues um there's a, there's a multitude of things that we're not taught most of us at least our generations learned them the hard way it was we were told don't bother me just go figure it out and we screwed up a lot of stuff, some some bigger than others. But so you figured it out the hard way. But the world is changing so rapidly to, again, your point earlier with technology and the way younger generations were brought up with a with a device. Uh, it's not the same world. It's not as easy to just say, go figure it out. And a lot of pain and brain damage could be avoided if you actually us as firm owners or our staff knew what the hell to do before the fire alarm was pulled. And I, so I think if you could do one thing, market the hell out of yourself. And then the other thing you could do is get trained. So when 
the situations happening live on, on the ground, you're in battle mode. It's second nature to, to handle the issue. Yeah. Yeah. For my audience, his name is Chris Colby. The podcast that we're recording for is Antidote One Podcast. You should go check that out. We'll have links to all of that on the show notes for for my episode. Um, you should go check them out. And uh, Chris, I want to thank you for everything that you're doing at Antidote One. Um, you're a you're a big part of the solution in our profession, and I appreciate that. And so I want to thank you for doing what you do at Antidote One, and for thanking thank you for being on my podcast, the Entree Architect Podcast. I appreciate you. The website that has more information on it's training.antidote1.com. That's where you're going to find more of uh, the meat of what we do. You were here before me in this in this space, so um, it's an honor to even be on the same podcast with you and watch what you've done and how you grow. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, go write a review. I would love to know what you think of this podcast and it helps other architects find us. So go do five-star rating if you like it, share, write a review, I'd love it, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that's how we've grown. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of architects throughout the world just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks and BQE for their support of this episode. I ask you to support them because they support us. And if they're supporting us, they're supporting you. So go support them. Got it? Go support our sponsors. Links to our sponsors. So you can click on those links and go right to them. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we shared today are available at the show notes for this episode at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. All the shows are there. entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows. I think there are 11 of them there now. Go there, gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And I hope you're going to join us in Austin, November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Those are the dates for the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, our first ever live and in-person conference for you, the small firm architect community. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin in November. Don't miss this. This is going to be great. entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting. It's a conference for you, small firm architects. Thank you for listening today to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, 
stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success. <laughs>